And the rest of us here, we're going to turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 is where we are at today. And we began last week with a, an entirely new section of Peter. And it's a section in chapter 2 that emphasizes what theme. Does anyone remember? The theme of? No one wants to bring it up because it's too traumatizing. <laughs> the theme of? Submission, right? And so we, we dealt with a lot of what submission is and what does it look like and the whole concept behind it from a scriptural perspective and why we so naturally push against it. And so if you missed that, you can just watch it online, the sermon last week. Uh, it was probably one of my longest sermons because there was so much to discover and talk about. But we started an entire new section on what does it look like for the church to be people of submission? What does it look like? And, and the, uh, the language that Peter uses is in chapter 2, verse 13. And he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. In other words, this is part of our worship. This is part of the way the gospel goes forward to what? To every, anyone remember? To every human institution. And he begins by the one that none of us wanted to talk about last week. It was the last answer we gave. He begins by submitting to who? To, to the emperor, to the government, right? To governing authorities. And, and Peter says, your calling as the church is to be good citizens in the way that you subject yourselves to governors, to the emperor. And, and then he begins a new category and he says, also what... What category of people are called to submit? Also, slaves to their masters, right? And so we defined and talked about what slavery was last week in that cultural context and what submission would actually look like. And so Peter is beginning this argument that part of our worship of God and part of the way that we relate to the world around us whether it to be emperors who are just or unjust, whether it be to masters or to co-workers or to bosses that are just or unjust, our call then is to be a people of submission. Does that mean we submit in everything? No. And we talked a lot about that last week, so I don't want to jump into that and waste a bunch of time here. But what does it mean to be subject, to be submissive in that context? And what Peter's going to do now is he's really displaying how the gospel shows itself in impossible situations. Because what he's going to do is he's going to say, you know what, you as the church are called to exercise submission even to unjust governing and authorities. Why? Because this is going to display the gospel. You as slaves, you're going to have to submit to your masters even though they treat you poorly at times. Why? Because this displays the gospel. And then the category we're going to come to this morning is he's going to talk about wives, women who had come to faith in Jesus, and yet their husbands are still aren't believers. And he's going to say, you know what, the way you submit to them is going to show you the gospel. And the whole point of what he's doing in this logic, and then he's going to go later on to this next section when we get to the other half of chapter 3 is, you know what, this is how you as a church submit to one another. And his whole point is, you know what, if there's ever a reason to be rebellious and revengeful, it's against what? It's against an unjust government. 
If there's ever a reason to be rebellion, uh, have rebellion, it's against a slave who says, my master's treating me poorly. If there's ever a reason for a woman to rebel, it says, I have a husband who isn't a Christian and I follow Jesus, not him. If there's ever a reason for someone to say, oh, the church isn't perfect and so I don't submit to them, I only submit to God, and Peter says, wait a second, you've got it all wrong. The way that the gospel shows itself, the way that the mission of the church advances is not despite those things, it's in those things. And so really this is a section of submission that we're talking about. And the reason why this, can, the, this phrase continues is when we read the very first word in chapter 7. Or sorry, chapter 3. Um, we see that Peter says, likewise. So what does he mean by Likewise. It's continuing the argument, right? It's continuing the argument of submission. It's continuing the argument of what's going on here. And he says, likewise, wives. Now, here's a question for us. Peter takes special time out of this letter to address slaves and to address wives. Why would he do that? He's a man. <laughs> nice share. <laughs> yeah, very observant share, right? I'm thinking more historically. What, what's going on in this culture, right? Yeah, they, they had no rights in that culture, but we're, we're looking at two major demographics that are primarily the main demographics of the church in his context. I mean, when we read about the early church and the expansive growth that experienced, what were the two major demographics that were coming to faith in Jesus? It was slaves and it was women. Why? It's because we realize that what the gospel told them is everything against their gospel, uh, the, the culture told them. And so a slave, well, they're someone who is simply property. They're dehumanized. They have no value except for what they can do um, occupationally. Uh, you think of a woman. A woman had no rights in that culture. She couldn't vote. She couldn't do all the things we take for granted in a Western society today. She too is at times dehumanized, devalued. Her husband could commit adultery against her and have no consequences. Um, she was literally treated as property at times. And so then the message of Jesus comes to this Greco-Roman world, the world that Peter is writing into, and Jesus says, wait a second, all humans have value. All humans have dignity. All humans have worth. All humans are made in the image of God. All humans have a purpose to their life. And so this gospel message that Jesus brings, especially in the Greco-Roman world for slaves and women, this, this was life-changing, wasn't it? This was an identity change for them. And so the early church, the expanse of growth that we see was with slaves and women. And there's even some comical things written around the second century. Uh, if you're into history, you might like this. If you're not, just bear with it. But uh, the Roman Celsus, anyone heard of Celsus before? He's a writer, an author. Okay, well, now you know him. He's writing in, this, uh, he's writing in the second century. 
And in his writing, he begins to mock the church because it was so full of women and children. Because so many women were coming to faith. And it became such a, an issue, actually. There was a, a bishop uh, who was a leader of the church. He was, his name was Cyprian of Carthage. And he wrote around 250 AD, and he said this. He says, the Christian maidens are very numerous. <laughs> What does that mean? There's tons of women in the church right now. And this was actually a problem. He says it was actually difficult to find husbands for them all because so many women were coming to faith. And, and what's fascinating is there's a, a societal issue going on with so many women coming to faith, um, their husbands, who were still very much part of the, the Roman upper elite status in Rome and the Greco-Roman world, they wouldn't come to faith. Their wives would, but they wouldn't. And one of the reasons why, they would remain pagans because if they converted to Christianity, they would lose their status of power, of prestige, of wealth. And so culturally, you have this massive issue in the early church where you have all these women coming to faith, but their Roman husbands remain pagans. And Peter acknowledges this. He, he realizes this. And, and even this was such an issue in the church um, that Callistus, who was the bishop of Rome around 220 AD, uh, he actually argued against the, the Roman Senate, and he made this sanction that allowed a woman to marry a slave or a freed slave, which was completely illegal in the Greco-Roman world. She had to marry of a senatorial status. And so you even see the laws being changed around this issue at the time. And so when Peter writes very specifically here, wives be subject to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word, he is dealing with a very significant historical reality. And so uh, even today, I mean, even Cheryl, that was beautiful. You brought it up in your prayer, and you're by no means the only one here. So many women in our culture and context, and even this church, struggle with what it means to be a Christian when my husband isn't. Or even if my husband gives verbal adage to being a Christian, but he truly doesn't live for God. There's a challenge there. And, and Peter says the challenge that comes is saying, well, I am now a Christian, I submit to God. My husband is not a Christian, therefore I don't have to listen to him at all. And Peter is saying, wait a second, there's something going on here that needs to be dealt with. And so Peter says this, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. And so what's, what's the message here that Peter's giving? He's saying, this actually has to do with evangelism. This has to do with how you display the gospel in your relationships. This has to do with how you show gentleness and how you show respect and how you have a pure conduct even to someone who doesn't believe the same things you do and perhaps even demands other things. And so this is Peter's whole argument at this point. He's, he's giving these instructions to this wife of an unbelieving husband. And so he, here we have then this category of, of what Peter is speaking into. 
He's speaking into the relationship of marriage. He's speaking into the context of marriage. And for those of us who have married or have been married, uh, marriage reveals a lot about you, doesn't it? It's probably one of the most powerful relationships that reveals who you truly are. It reveals the, the depth of how you act to certain people and how you act in different circumstances and all these things. And so Peter's going to speak into this marriage relationship. And he's going to speak, first of all, to the wives, specifically um, unbelieving wives, uh, husbands of unbelievers, uh, or other way. And then he's going to speak to the husbands in verse 7, explaining what it means for them to submit. Now, here's a fascinating thing to me. When we look at our, our marriage relationships, is there any perfect marriage relationship out there? No. And again, we talked about this last week, but so often the only thing we're willing to submit to is something that is perfect, isn't it? And so we say, okay, unless the government is perfect, we're not going to submit to them. Um, and, unless my boss is perfect, I'm not going to submit to them. All, all this mental game that we play where we really struggle to submit to any authorities above us. And, and Peter is getting at the same thing. He's saying even though your marriage may not be perfect, even though it may not be ideal, there's still a submission reality that's going to benefit you here. There's going to be something that is going to be beneficial for you. And so we, we come to this realization that even though our marriages are imperfect, we have a God who is perfect that can work in those marriages. Amen? That's the only hope we all have. I, I mean, for Rebecca and I, our, our marriage, to be honest with you, was just about done after our first year. Our, our first year was great, and then second into the second year, everything just fell apart. And it's only by the grace of God, by the wisdom of God, by the protection of God that we even stay together. And so it's understanding that even though our marriages are not perfect, we have a perfect God who can redeem and reconcile and work in those marriages. And so he starts by honoring your non-Christian spells, verses 1 to 2. Again, this evangelism that happens through submission. And again, we, we talked about that quite a bit, so let me go to this next section, verses 3 and 4 here. This is what Peter says. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so what's Peter getting at here? What's he defining? He's defining how God sees beauty, doesn't he? Now, what's fascinating to me, this is almost the exact opposite of how our culture sees beauty, isn't it? We see beauty almost purely as external, we see beauty purely on how people present themselves from a physical nature. We, we see beauty only in light of that. I mean, all, I, I don't read many women's magazines, but I, I see the covers, and what's it about? It's about makeup and about clothes and about hair and all these things. Now, now is Peter saying, be done with all of those? No, because then if that was all wrong, he mentions clothes and no one would have clothes, and then the world would get very awkward. But this is what Peter's saying. He's saying... Don't prioritize those things. 
Don't let that be the standard and definition of beauty for you. And, and that's something that, yes, women need to hear, but men as well, whether it's with your spouse or whether it's with someone you're dating or seeking to have a relationship, don't let that be your standard of beauty. Don't let that be what brings attraction into your life. And, and Peter says that the women have this internal beauty. And, and the language that he uses is the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. There, it's this way of, of saying this is the character of a person. This is the essence of who they are. This is the imperishable beauty, right? This is the beauty that lasts. Now, what I find absolutely fascinating here is he uses this language of imperishable beauty. Now, back in chapter 1, he uses this language of imperishable hope that comes from what? The event of Jesus, the, the resurrection, right? Now, I find this absolutely fascinating that Peter's building the entire letter on this, this concept of resurrection and how it changes everything. But then he wants you to see that even beauty can be seen through the light of resurrection. Is that hope for all of us right now? <laughs> especially as we age, especially as we get older, especially as our bodies are falling apart, uh, <laughs> all these things, right? There's a hope there for resurrection still, even that affects our bodies. And he says, because of the resurrection, you have a beauty that is imperishable. Isn't that a powerful thought? You have a beauty that is imperishable, that is growing within you, so you don't need to build your identity on these external features. You don't have to present yourself in a certain way. You, you don't have to, um, again, identify yourself by how you look or what, what it means or the, the wealth on your wrists as far as jewelry, right? And so Peter says your identity, your beauty is actually caught up in resurrection as well. And there's a deep hope there. And so, again, your appearance is not this primary motive of a wife, but it's the character. It's the character. Now, he gives a case study of this. He says in verse 5, he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, which is another way of just respect, sir. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, here's a fascinating illustration that he gives. And I find this somewhat comical because he says the, the women used to adorn themselves by out of respect for their husbands, out of submission to them, and he gives the example of Sarah. Now, is Sarah the best example in Scripture? Why, why is she a hopeful example? Think of some of the stories of Sarah and Abraham. Just process of Think of the story even of when Abraham came to Sarah, and he said, Sarah... God told us that we are going to have children. How did Sarah respond? She laughed at him. She said, 
Abraham, you're too old. I'm way too old. We're not having kids. Like, this is a joke. Like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. This is crazy. Um, even even uh, Sarah and Abraham, think before even that laughter. Even when they were trying to have a kid and God promised them that they would have a kid, Sarah begins to take things into her own hands, doesn't she? And what does she propose to Abraham? Uh, hey, we can't have kids. So Abraham, there's a woman over there. Why don't you try and have a kid with her? Right? That's her way to solve a solution. That's pretty awkward, isn't it? These are some sweet Bible stories that get really wild, right? TV shows get made out of these things, right? But, but this is Sarah's response. And, and so, again, like, what's going on here? And again, Abraham's just as horrible of an example when we look at his life, too. And, and we see that in both their lives, in Abraham and Sarah, they both struggled to have a faith in God. I mean, they, they literally had adultery. They, they had another child out of wedlock. And yet... The beauty of it is that did God still work through them? And did God still continue his purposes of even bringing the line of the Messiah through them? Yeah. And so here's, here's the hope that is being mentioned here. Holy women who hoped in God. In other words, despite them, God still worked through them. Despite their discouragement and despite their doubts, God still worked through them. And so this is the, the concept then that is really being pushed at with the example of Sarah. Um, this is what's sustaining them. It's, it's this concept, no matter how poorly your husband leads the marriage or how many horrible mistakes that you make in the marriage, that you can trust in a God who ultimately will sustain your marriage and will actually allow beautiful things to come through you. And so this is the, the hope that's being laid out before them. Even though you're going to fail again and again, here's the beauty. God's still going to work through it. And you do it as you respect and submit to your husband. Now, here's the other hand. So verse... 1 of chapter 3 began with what word? Likewise. And what was it referring to? Submission, right? The theme of submission. Now, here's what I see sometimes. Is I see husbands who, who talk about a passage like this and they'll say, see, wife, you're supposed to submit to me. Right? Is that a healthy marriage? No, <laughs> not at all. And what I often I see this in this passage, and I see this in Ephesians five. I see people do this, and then and then they go, "Oh well, we're just going to keep reading verse seven here." Um, but verse seven, what does it say? What does it start with? Likewise, and so what's that likewise going back to? Submission, right? And it drives me crazy when I, when I hear men talk about, oh, my wife is submit, supposed to submit to me, and then I say, well, what about the other likewise? Where's your submission? What are you doing for your wife? It's, it's again, this twisted understanding. Even Scripture gets twisted. And so Peter says, likewise, husbands. In other words, here's how you submit. Here's how your submission looks like. 
He says this, he says, Husbands likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's probably the most challenging thing a husband can hear, right? <laughs> I mean, understanding way. Already I'm thinking, I was like, I don't understand my wife. I don't understand what's going on half the time. How am I supposed to do this, God? I can't understand even what she wants for breakfast sometimes. How am I going to understand everything, right? Live with your wives in an understanding way. But, but really this concept of understanding has to do with the word empathy. And the Greek word isn't actually that far off from empathy here. Now, now, what is empathy then? Empathy is, give me a definition. Maybe one at a time right now. <laughs> the mass make it even harder, right? Yeah, walking a mile in the shoes is a good illustration too, but, it, but it's seeing life through their perspective. And it's trying to understand life from their perspective. Now, that is extremely hard to do, isn't it? Because especially one of the ways that we push back against submission is selfishness. And we talked a little bit about this last week too, is, is I want what I want. I want to do what I want to do. And no one can tell me what to do, right? Amen to that? No amen to that. <laughs> but that's how we're driven. And, and so Peter is saying, no, you as a man are already taught in your culture. And I mean, this is the Greco-Roman world, and it's still very much our world today, is, is that you have power, you have control, you don't submit. And yet Peter says, you know what? You need to live in an understanding way. You need to be empathetic. You need to view life from her perspective. You need to try and understand what she's thinking, what she's experiencing, what she is emotionally at the time, which, again, sounds like an impossible task, doesn't it, men? But this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. And he says, here's how you also, you show empathy, and then you show honor to her. You honor her. And the way that you show honor is you prioritize, you invest, you seek after. Um, a good way of, of defining this too is I remember when Rebecca and I were, were planning getting married and we were doing marriage counseling and all these things. And one of the statements that struck out to me from one of our premarital counselors is he says, you saying yes to Rebecca means that you are saying no to everyone else. And that's a perspective of, of honor. In, in other words, now she becomes a priority. She becomes everything. I am saying no to all these other women, no matter what form or capacity that relation looks like, in a way to honor her. That's what honor looks like. And so he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now here's what's fascinating. Now don't get offended here. But what's going on here? What, what's the weaker vessel? Now, commentators will say, well, there's, there's some possibilities for definition here. But in the New Testament, when the word language vessel is used, it's always talking about a physicality. And so what's going on is the woman is a, a physically weaker being, right? And, and this... This I don't have to get into because it's, it's very obvious in our culture and society. 
Um, I mean, there's, there's been something drastic that's going on in the mixed martial arts world that's really being fought against, but when you have a man who now identifies as a woman, and now he's fighting against women. And there's so many in the mixed martial arts world saying, this is unjust, this is wrong. There's a biological nature that the majority of men are stronger than women, and so this is almost borderline abuse, right? Now, now is this an absolute statement? Does this mean every wife is weaker physically than her husband? No, I've met, I have a few friends that are women bodybuilders, and they're scary people. <laughs> and so it's not this absolute, but Peter's speaking in generalities, right? The, your, your wife is often the person who, who physically can be threatened by you. Now, here's why he says this. Uh, I mean, we, we see this in our culture to the greatest extent. First of all, men tend to have a trouble honoring and submitting to weakness. Men have trouble honoring and submitting to weakness. Why? Because everything else in our culture and society is how to take advantage and attack weaknesses, isn't it? I mean, from a very, from a very young age, I was taught this as well. I mean, you think about it from a sports perspective. Well, from a sports perspective, when you are having a competition against the other team, what is the very purpose of what you're trying to do? You're trying to win. You're trying to see their weaknesses and attack them, take advantage of them, right? You, you talk about the business world. My dad was a business consultant. And the whole concept of the business world is seeing areas of weaknesses in other companies and either trying to take advantage of them or take over them. Um, even from a militant perspective, the whole purpose of a military is to see weaknesses of the enemy and attack and strategize against those weaknesses. I mean, this is a very fabric of how so many of us as men have grown up and been taught is we attack, we take advantage of weaknesses. If we find a weakness, we expose it and exploit it. This is so much of how we're taught and raised. And yet Peter is saying, if you do the same thing in your marriage, you're going to destroy it. If you think you can see weakness and you take advantage of it, you domineer over it, you exercise power over it, he says that's going to destroy your marriage. And that's actually the exact opposite submission that God calls you to in how you handle a relationship with your wife. And so how do, we, how do we show honor and respect to one another in our marriage relationships? How does this function? Uh, I want to take a time out here, and then I'm going to deal with that last section of verse 7. But how do we show honor and respect? If, if wives are called to submit in this fashion and men are called to submit, husbands are called to submit in this fashion, what does that look like? What are some examples? Let's just throw some out to encourage each other. What does that look like in a healthy way? Yeah, helping each other out. So being willing to help in areas that you don't want to help in, right? Who here hates taking out the garbage? Or who here hates doing dishes, right? It's, it's understand the submitting to one another, a mutual submission. Yes. 
That is a very key point, Leslie, actually working together. Now, now this is crucial. Why? Because if you have an unhealthy view of submission, then the, the, the reality is, well, I'm the husband, my wife sits to, submits to me, which means I have the power and authority, I make the decisions, and she has no say in that. Whereas, no, Scripture calls us to a mutual submission, which means that there's times where each of us have to lead, but it's working together, it's working as a team, it's making decisions as a team. Because husbands, if you were the only one making decisions in your marriage, would your marriage fall apart? 100%, right? Uh, We don't survive in our marriage by taking authority and not listening to the other person, right? What are some other examples? How, How do we cultivate this honor and respect in our marriages? Yeah, listening to one another, actually showing empathy, hearing the other side and perspective of the person, right? Yeah, gratitude, thanksgiving. Yeah, protecting one another, defending one another, right? And, and this is a key part of the, the husbands, right, is, is actually in an understanding way to the honor as the weaker vessel, there's an aspect of protection there too. Yeah, healthy communication, again, being open and honest with one another, right? Uh, An unhealthy marriage is one that says, I'm going to tell you what to do. And so we could go on and on and on, but something I want you to be doing, especially as married couples, is begin thinking and processing, how does this look like in our marriage? And I'd say even for for some of you singles that are looking at married as well, thinking, well, well, what is the relationship that I'm looking towards or looking towards, and how am I going to prepare to be in that relationship? And even for you who are single, it's the question of, well, how do I show honor and respect still in my relationships with others? But here's, here's a key thing in verse 7. Here's a, a big, big statement. First of all, I, I skipped this part. I shouldn't have. Since they are heirs with you to the grace of life. In other words, they have equal authority before God and salvation, and they have the grace of God in their life. And then here's the the big closer. So that your prayers may not be what? So that your prayers may not be hindered. It's a big statement. In other words, if, if you're domineering over your wife, if you're mistreating her, if you are not listening or empathizing with her, that's going to deeply affect your relationship with God. And it's going to affect the way even your communication and receiving of God's presence and word. And so here, here's the thought behind this. So I have two daughters. One day they will likely get married. I don't know that, but we'll see. But let's just imagine for Alethian Alleluia, They both get married. One of them gets married to a husband who is respectful, who who practices mutual submission, who communicates well, who actually cares about her. And let's say, alleluia, marries some crazy guy who is self-absorbed, selfish, only cares about himself, um, only wants his needs, his wants, has little concern about anything going on in her life. Now, if both those husbands, 
came to me, and one said, hey, I really want to learn how to be a better person for my wife, for your daughter, and I want to grow in that, and I want to um, be more Christ-like even. Will you help me? Well, what am I going to say to that person? Of course I'll help you. Uh, Of course I'll answer that. Of, Of course I'll encourage you in that. Of course I'll sustain you in that. But on the other hand, if I have the husband who's neglecting his wife and he comes to me and he says, you know what? I don't really care about your daughter. I don't really care about her. Can you help me with some selfish things or whatever the reasons may be? What am I going to say to that? I'm going to say, no. I don't care about that. I don't care about your selfish desires. I care about how you treat my daughter, right? And it's this whole perspective with this prayer is being hindered is, is when we come before God as husbands and we say, God, we aren't perfect by any stretch, but we need your help. And the motive of your prayer is for your wife, for her well-being, for her, for her good, then God is going to answer those prayers. If you pray selfishly to God, not with a concern or love for your wife, God's, God's going to say, you know what? Go pursue your selfish endeavors and come back to me when you're actually ready to love, when you're ready to learn, when you're ready to have humility. And, and that's the posture that's being challenged here. And so here's the, the concept then. Here, here's the main thing that Peter is bringing out. is saying that marriage relationships are very hard, especially with a wife and an unbelieving husband. And he's saying what you have to do in your marriage relationship is first of all understand this theology of submission. Understand that life isn't always about rebellion. It's not about always getting what you want. It's not always about putting your needs first. It's about submitting to the needs of others and even being willing to sacrifice for them. And so wives, especially to non-believing husbands, this is what submission looks like. It, It looks like honoring your husband. It looks like respecting your husband. It looks like whatever capacity that may be in your life. And then husbands, here's what submitting and honoring your wife looks like. Showing empathy, showing honor, taking care of the weaker vessel, not domineering or having power. And this is the premise that Peter now gives to husbands and wives. Now, I know that this is focused on a certain relationship and not all of us are in that relationship. Um, But next week, Peter's going to come in and in verse 8, he's going to say, finally. And when he says, finally, what does that mean? Finally, the subject of submission is all over, right? And we're going to praise that. (laughs) I hope we continue living it out, but it's always difficult to talk about, isn't it? And then Peter says, finally, all of you. In other words, verse 8, as we jump into next week, is going to be, this is what submission looks like for the entire church. This is what it means to submit to one another. This is what it means to exercise the gospel despite the hardship that we face. And so again, a summary, um, Peter says, you know what? Out of all the things that you think you don't need to submit in, those are actually the things that show the gospel the most. 
So whether it's an unjust government, whether it's an unjust company or boss, whether it's a, a wife that has a husband who's not even a believer, whether it's a husband who thinks he has power over his wife, Peter says, no, submit. Have submission there. And this brings honor and glory to God. Again, it's a message that we don't want to hear, but the kingdom of God is upside down, isn't it, church? It's completely upside down. It doesn't make sense to us, and yet that's where we know the abundance of life, the fullness of life is found. And so let me pray to that extent for us. Gracious Father, we come to you once again. And Lord, we are challenged and convicted by your word. Lord, this whole concept of submission is, is something even naturally we want to push against you, God. And yet you have called us to conform to the image of your Son. And so we pray specifically this morning, as we talk about marriage relationships, as we talk about wives and husbands and what that healthy marriage looks like, Lord, I just pray for us in this room that we would be husbands and wives that truly submit to one another in a way that honors and glorifies you in a way that may seem illogical to the world, in a way that seems impossible for us. But Lord, we know by the power of your Spirit, anything is possible. And so allow the wives in this room to be wives of submission, to be wives who show respect to their husbands, even when their husbands disappoint them, even when their husbands let them down, even when their husbands make mistakes. Lord, may they not be people of harsh words, but of respect and honor. And Lord, I pray for the husbands as well. May we as husbands truly realize what it means even to submit. As, as we are so often prone to exercise power and authority in an unhealthy way, Lord, reveal to us what it means to show empathy. Reveal to us what it means to not take advantage of weakness, but actually submit to even weakness. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your Holy Spirit to do so. And so power us, enable us to do it so that your gospel can be sent forth, even in strange circumstances, and that your name would be proclaimed to the nations. And that as people see the marriages in this church, they would see health and vitality and joy. Lord, may it be done so that your name would be glorified among us, we pray. Amen.